people have and will deny Jesus and walk away from the faith. That's a reality we are hit with this morning. In research, some sociologists, you know what I'm saying, uh, are trying to make sense of what's happening. And, and one researcher says that there's three different kind of dimensions of people that walk away from the faith. What I'll, I'll use this term right now, defection, that they defect from the faith. And he says there's intellectual reasons, there's uh, social reasons, there are emotional, spiritual reasons. So on the intellectual side, like why someone might walk away from the faith is because they, they don't believe the core tenets of that religion anymore, and, and they start believing or attracted to more secular doctrines, and they start looking at it, so it's an intellectual thing, like that. that's intellectual wrestling and doubts and fights and worrying over words and worldviews and all, all that. There's a, that's a, a reason that people defect from the faith, because they don't hold on to the core tenets any longer. Uh, others, it's a social reason, and so that could be you, you don't have any like significant relationships in the church, or maybe uh, there's a loss of friendships, or there's there's something that's broken there, and so you'd rather start over fresh somewhere else than stay in this community, and so it could be a breaking down of relationships that, that kind of create this like I don't, I don't know if this is good. And, and I'll tell you, that, that's been the shift that's happened over the past probably 20 years, maybe in the past really 10 years in our culture, is that a lot of us are still trying to answer the question or tell people that God is true, that Christianity is true, that Jesus is true, but they're not asking that question anymore. Modern people ask that question. Postmodern people don't really ask if it's true. They ask, is it good? Is God good? Is Christianity good? Is Jesus good? That's the question they're asking, which leads to the emotional, spiritual aspect of why people leave the church. Emotional could be uh, uh, some things from their childhood, maybe some trauma there, and so then you have this connection with maybe a particular leader, and it feels very similar to your mom or your dad, uh, or, or there's just conflict and brokenness in, in relationships. Um, also, this researcher, he says, the common phenomenon of youthful, youthful rebellion against parental religion. And he says that many youngsters are drifting away from religion not because uh, uh, it's not true and beautiful and like really solidified in their bones. They're leaving because of this. Not intellectual doubts, but because of a gnawing sense of guilt and shame due perhaps to sex conflicts. Like, oh, I spiritually, like, I'm fighting and warring over uh, sexuality and sexual sin, and so I, I don't want to keep going down this road because I know what Jesus says about this. I'd rather do this. Like, I'm not going to wrestle over, like, the intellectual arguments over the Bible being true. What I will wrestle and fight over is if you get to tell me or the Bible gets to tell me what I can do with my body and my life when I want and so in thinking about this, there's some research there, but then, then I wanted to, to have like a pastoral <laughs> uh, sense, like, yeah, thank you, sociologist, mm, said it then, but, uh, but, but, but like what pastoral like reflection, and there's one pastor who said he's walked with many people wrestling with deconstruction, and I'll, I'll talk about that word a little bit in a minute, and he, he notes that deconstruction is the symptom, not the root cause. It's a symptom, not a root cause. He says, here's four most common root causes that he's seen. Number one, church hurt. 
Here's a reason why people might deconstruct or defect from the faith is because there's church hurt. A leader failed you or someone in the church spiritually abused you or church folks sinned against you. And so in that midst of that wound, that wound is so deep and wide that you feel like you can't bridge that chasm. And so we walk away because if Jesus' church is a good, can Jesus be good, right? And that's where some people get to the point where like, I love Jesus, but not the church. But it's a very bizarre realm to love the groom and not the bride. But that's what's happening. Two, he says, poor teaching is another root cause that he seemed just sloppy and out of context. Teaching had just kind of wrecked people's appetite for the Bible. Like they just, this is kind of all over. It's chaotic. I can tell things are ripped out of, uh, of context. I can tell that this is Christianized American values, so I know that there's something kind of off here. Like it's just like American values that have just thrown in some Jesus in it, and it's like, well, is that, is that true? Is that good? Is that beneficial? Is like Jesus just the genie in our worldview to give us the American dream? Is that, that's it's just, it's poor teaching. So people leave, walk away. He says there's the desire to sin as well. <laughs> he said, he's had people say, I've got, I want to, meet with you to ask some big questions about God and then come to find out what they really want to talk about is their affair they've been having for, for a few months. Like they're not really wrestling with intellectual arguments about God. What they're wrestling with is I'm in sin. I think I want to keep on sinning and I'll deny this so I can keep doing what I want. I'll walk away from this so I can go my own path. And then less, lastly, he says street cred. Um, it's trendy to be an ex-evangelical, to have a hashtag, and to get swept up in a movement. There's a lot of social pressure that you can release uh, the valve on if you just simply deny Jesus and go with the flow. And so in thinking about sociologists, thinking about this pastor, that there's some heavy stuff here. Now, when I talk about deconstruction, that, that's a broad term. So let me define it, not let you import your definition into it. Deconstruction is this broad kind of umbrella term that can include people that are defecting, walking away from the faith. That's true. It can also mean people that are trying to deconstruct uh, the cultural values that they grew up in and seeing it, that was just kind of merged with Christianity. And are these things true? Does these things really fit into a Christian worldview? And if they don't, I need to deconstruct this and like, remove this from my thinking and my life and so that I can be uh, just fully committed to Jesus and follow him in every aspect of my life. And, and what I would say, that's a good endeavor. If, you, if you're using the word deconstruction for that endeavor, like, okay, I'm good for that endeavor. Like if you're trying to wrestle with, I want to follow Jesus fully and clearly and as, as best as I can in my context, in my life, in my neighborhood, without just merging a bunch of worldly values to it. That's a good endeavor. But the text this morning is clearly focused on and speaking of people who are defecting from the faith, who are walking away from Jesus and the faith. So that's 1 John 2. If you have your Bible, please look at it with me. I want you to see this. 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is 
coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained in us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Now let's break down a few phrases first. Number one, it's the last hour. Last hour in John's language, he's actually the only author who uses that phrase, last hour, and he uses it multiple times in his epistles, but what he's saying is the age between Jesus' first coming and second coming, and, and that's what Paul does, and, and other authors, right, when they say things like uh, the last days, or the end of the age, or the last, uh, uh, the last age, the last day, that that's what they're all talking about, this time between Jesus' first coming 2,000 years ago and his second coming whenever that happens, because there's nothing in between. There's nothing cataclysmic that we're waiting on to happen before Jesus returns. Like, that is the next massive cataclysmic event to happen to this world, is that Jesus shows up, not a savior on a cross, but a king on a horse, and he's going to set the world right. That's where we're waiting. So he's talking about the last hour, this age, this space between Jesus' first and second coming. The word antichrist means against Christ or in place of Christ, but definitely in this context, what these people are doing are against Christ. The truth of spiritual warfare is that God creates and Satan counterfeits. Satan is not creative. Satan doesn't have the power, but but what God does, then Satan just comes and counterfeits each little thing. And what that means is for this, is that the gospel will be spread across the nations, but so will false teaching. Because Jesus sends missionaries to the nations, and you know what Satan does? He counterfeits, and he sends, not missionaries, or you could call them missionaries, but better, they're called antichrists, sends antichrists all over the globe to spread false teaching. God creates, but Satan counterfeits, and so they're sent to preach lies. They're sent to preach falsehood. They're sent to deceive. And these antichrists, John says, are liars who deny that Jesus is the Messiah. And their strategy is deceptive and seductive because if you know, uh, the the enemy loves to work in half-truths. And so these people aren't outright saying, uh, Jesus isn't real, there's nothing about Jesus. They're just reimagining Jesus. They're redefining Jesus. Does that sound familiar to our current age, right? Reimagine him. Re, like I, I think those there's there's adjectives for the kind of Jesus that you follow, right? It's like, wait, what? How, how are there seven different kinds of Jesus? There's one, and like he's alive right now, so he gets to dictate what we say about him, not us just making up. Oh, we know the cool Jesus. That's who I follow. I don't. I'm sorry. What? Who? The cool Jesus? The hippie Jesus? That's who I look like. I'm following, but I'm not. Uh, Their strategy is to redefine Jesus. They can say he's good, but they will say he's not God. They may say he may be a son of God, like we can be sons and daughters of God, but he's not the son of God. Or he may have died on a cross as a martyr, but he didn't die as a savior. 
the, the spirit of Antichrist always diminish the person and work of Christ. If you're wrestling with what's going on with this person, what's this new stuff that I'm hearing from them? If it diminishes the work and person of Jesus, run. Just run. I can't imagine that the same God who told us to flee sin would be like, hey, but you know, just kind of meddle with that false teaching. Maybe check it out a little bit. Maybe really just expose it, kind of open it up and unpack all of it. I can't imagine God, I, I just, flee, run, run away. Always diminish the personal work of Christ. Their teaching undercut his deity and uh, fought against his atoning work on the cross. So they went out from us, but they don't belong to us. That's a helpful word because sometimes we get overly concerned about what's going to happen from the outside to us. <laughs> but Satan loves to send wolves in the midst of us. Will he attack from outside? I'm sure. Of course he has, and he will. But he loves to send wolves in among us, false teachers, so that he can implode us from the inside because that typically uh, uh, creates greater destruction. You know what, what happens actually sometimes when you're, getting, when you're getting fought from the outside, it sometimes solidifies a group of people say, no, we're standing strong in opposition to this, uh, this thing that is coming at us. But when it comes from within, it's a surprise usually, and it's subtle and sneak, and it takes some time. And then you wake up two years later, and you're like, I'm not really sure if Jesus is the son of God. He may be a good teacher. Like, what, what shifted? What moved in you over those two years? It was sneaky and subtle. They went out from us but didn't belong to us. Daniel Aiken, in his commentary, says this, Satan is a master deceiver and strategist who knows that the deployment of a spiritual Trojan horse can do serious, if not irreparable, damage to the body of Christ. However, once the damage is done, the Antichrist will leave the spiritual battlefield taking with them what captives they can. Eventually, they reveal their true colors and allegiance. Their departure will almost always be painful and the occasion for tremendous grief, but their exit is essential for the health and vitality of the church. Alistair Begg takes it one step further, and he says, there are some who share for a while our earthly company who do not share our heavenly birth. That's a, that's a contrast. You may be a part of this church. You may not be a part of God's kingdom. The, these people were there for some time. I can't give you the exact time, but they were there for some time, and then they went out. So they acted as if they were a part of the They felt like they were a part of the community. They, they were, you know, acting like they were following Jesus, but when it comes down... Rubber meets the road. They left us because they didn't belong to us. And to be clear, I'm not talking about people that have left our church for another church. I'm not talking about people that have moved to different parts of the country. I, I am by no means saying that this is, what, the only true church in this neighborhood. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about that. Those are friends. Those are family members. They moved to another part of the country, going to a church, following Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people defecting from their faith. A faith that fizzles is a faith 
that was faulty to begin with. If it doesn't endure to the end, it wasn't genuine from the beginning. Genuine faith perseveres to the end, follows Jesus, and worships Jesus to the end until death. They left the church because they had left Christ. Which brings us back again to John's crucial test. The crucial test as a Christian and to understand your place with God or understand like, am, am I just playing this thing? Am I just acting this out because I grew up in it and I'm, I really like the communal aspect of that? Like I have a place where I have some social, relational ties. The crucial test is if, if, if I'm really following, committed to Jesus, is if, if, if this genuine faith is this, what do you think and believe about Jesus? Not, not what are your contemporary problems about the contemporary church. Not, oh, I don't like this. Oh, I grew up in this. I'm saying, what do you think and believe about Jesus? What? To these antichrists, these heretics, Jesus was important but not preeminent. That sounds familiar too. I know a lot of people that respect Jesus but don't see Jesus as supreme. He was significant but not the Savior. And when it comes, brass tacks, to deny Jesus as the Messiah is to deny Jesus as the Son of God. To reduce Jesus to the status of a mere man, or to say he had a, a temporary indwelling of the divine while he was on earth, that strikes at the heart, at the root of Christianity. I mean, modern antichrist uh, may have more refined ways of stating this, but they're still denying the reality of the incarnation. The reality is Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, came and was born fully God, fully man, and lived sinlessly, perfectly, filled by the Spirit, died in our place for our sins and rose triumphantly over the grave and he reigns now. That's the reality. And I said on Easter, I don't want you to get stuck. If you're wrestling, if you're doubting, if you're a little bit confused, I want you to get stuck on secondary or tertiary matters. What I want you to really wrestle with is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what you have to fight for. I don't want you to make tertiary items uh, of first importance and then argue your way out of following Jesus because of secondary issues. The primary importance is this. Did Jesus really rise from the grave like he said he was going to do? And after you have an empty tomb, no bones, more than 500 witnesses, the rapid rise of Christianity and disciples who followed Jesus after his resurrection all the way until they died and died for his sake, for his name, what else is stopping you from believing the truth that Jesus rose from the grave? Jesus is alive, and everything is about him. He is the supreme ruler and sovereign savior of the cosmos. 
Yet, people are leaving Jesus and the church. So maybe the first thing I put at to you is this. I, I want us to be just careful and nuanced and wise and gracious when we enter into these conversations with other people because you get a word out there that's trendy like deconstruction you apply your definition to them and then you write them off or put them in a category because it's more simple to put people in categories to write them off than the complexity of actually entering in and have to hear them and serve them in their specific needs or struggles so listen to them Try to discern, okay, what is actually happening? What's, what may be the root cause here? Or discern, is this like they're on the precipice of, precipice of defecting from the faith? Or, or are they just kind of trying to wrestle through some values and like uh, worldly uh, values that have instilled to them, things they kind of picked up as they, they grew up or, or where they lived? And, and they're trying to wrestle like, are these things compatible with Christ? Should this be a part of my life? And you to be able to discern the difference there and, and come to where they're at and love them and move towards them in mercy and grace like Jesus has done to you rather than putting them in a box and then defining them as you think they should be defined. And then if you are maybe in this place right now, tempted to defect, tempted to like you just maybe have a lot, of, a lot of doubts and confusion. Can I be honest? The, oh, hold on, I'll be 38 in October. In the past five years, I think we've experienced more cultural change than we did in the first 32 years of my life. Things have rapidly, like it's been happening since the 50s in America and it's been like this long foundation being set to what Carl Truman calls the rise of the modern self. But then the past five years, it just like took off. It was like, it was like 60 years of fueling up the space rocket in the past five. I was like, let's send them on. And it just changed so rapidly. So I know when like upheaval like that puts people in a place where like I'm uncertain where do I fit in this story now? Do I want to be on the right side of history? Do I, I want to, to go with this movement? Do I need to question everything that, that I've believed up to this point? Because this is what everyone is talking about. This is where everyone is going now. So I'm going to go back to the four common root causes of deconstruction. And if it's church hurt, can I tell you? The answer is not deconstruction, but grief and lament. Church hurt is real, but deconstructing is a false cure. It's a false cure. The psalmist, led by the Spirit of God, so graciously gave us poetry and songs to express our grief to God. And so if you've been hurt by the church, I'm sorry, but the answer is not to bell on the groom and the bride, Jesus and his church. The answer is to grieve and lament to Jesus. In these moments of pain, they are opportunities for you to draw near to Jesus, not run away from him. Secondly, bad teaching. Can we not throw out 
Jesus as the baby in the bathwater just because there's some sloppy teachers out there? The cure for bad teaching is not to throw out Christianity. The cure is good teaching. That's what it is. Don't throw away the Bible because people stink at teaching it. Deconstruction, and that, again, is a false cure. It sounds really good. It's some quick medicine to relieve some symptoms, but it doesn't bring actual healing and joy and wholeness. What about the desire to sin? <laughs> if, and this, this is maybe the biggest one. If, if your sin and your habitual sin and your desire to stay in that sin is pressing on you so hard that you're willing to defect from Jesus, the answer is not run away from Jesus, but confess and repent of your sin. Put it to death, not Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, like, don't give up on Jesus. Give up on your sin. Don't turn away from him. Turn away from it to him. Defecting is not a real cure. Justifying your sin by denying Jesus to get rid of the feelings of shame and guilt is not helpful. That's not healing. It wrecks. It wrecks, and it will wreck your life. What about street cred? You don't have to get people's approval. You can actually die to your image for others and stand strong because the Father fully accepts you because of the death of Jesus. You can die to the image that you've portrayed to other people or you want them to love you and approve of you. You can die to that because Jesus has you. The, the church has thrived on the merge, margins from the beginning. I think this so much upheaval the past five years for us feels very unsettling because we are very comfortable in a culture that sometimes or often matched some of our values and it no longer does. And that's surprising for us, a little unsettling. But the church of God, Jesus' church, was birthed in a culture just like us. A hostile, wild, crazy views on sex and sexuality and gender and marriage. And you know what the gospel did? Thrived. Thrived in the margins in a reckless, destructive, sinful, idolatrous culture. And so we're in that now. It's being clearly delineated of where we are living in. More in Babylon, right? We're living more in Babylon now than we are in Jerusalem. But the church has always thrived on the margins in hostile environments with different definitions of identity and sex and gender and marriage. It keeps thriving because the power behind it is not cultural values that shift and shape and change uh, each century, each decade now, it's powered by the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And so I'll tell you how we'll thrive. Look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. So he's been talking about the Antichrist that have left them, that don't belong to them. Now he's talking to them, to the members of the churches that he's writing to. And he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth. So this, this should probably feel like most of you. Like you're, many of you in this room are Christians. You know the truth and you're like, okay, I don't need to know about all this John. And John's like, no, you do. I'm writing to you. Not because uh, you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Verse 22, who is the liar? If not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Now with this, I think on, a, on the face reading of this, we could be discouraged and despair because of the numbers of Antichrist and false teachers and people walking away from the faith, and because false teachers are typically intellectual heavyweights with charisma and personality, and John tells us that they are committed to our defeat, but we shouldn't despair, we shouldn't be discouraged because of 1 John 4, 4, this is what God promises us. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John reminds us that we have a double-barreled shotgun in our arsenal against Satan and the Antichrist and the false teachers. Two barrels, the Spirit and the Word. It's that simple. The anointing of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He says, you've been anointed by the Holy One. That's Jesus. He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus, the anointed Messiah, has anointed you with the Holy Spirit. This is John 14. See this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Do you, do you remember when you became a Christian? Like you were free and new. God gave you a, a new heart and the things that, that just you had affections for has changed and he gave you the Holy Spirit to empower you and be with you and to teach you. And God gave you his word, the scriptures. So my, my big idea is this. I told you at the beginning, people will walk away. People will deny Jesus and walk away from the faith. But we will stand strong to the end and endure by the word and the spirit. Word and spirit. That was the battle cry of the, the Protestant reformers. 
who were uh, championing justification by faith alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone, word and spirit. I mean, think about it. what has enabled us. He said in verse 19 that they left us because they didn't belong to us. But what has enabled us to remain in the apostles' teaching and the community of faith, the word and the spirit? That's what. We have an anointing from the Holy One. The uh, language, when he says you, is emphatic. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our future. Ephesians talks about it as like the down payment of heaven, meaning the Spirit in one sense is a glimpse of heaven now with you, in you. So much so that we've been consecrated and set apart by God, for God, by the Holy Spirit. And he's our internal and abiding teacher. Do you know whose teaching is better than the Antichrist? Not mine. The Holy Spirit. A better guide, a better presence, one who's actually for you, one who's actually good. The Holy Spirit who guides us, that Jesus said, in all knowledge and truth. He's going to be your teacher when I leave. He told the disciples. And so we're going to stand strong and endure by the word and the spirit. In this letter, John emphasizes the importance of walking with Jesus and loving others. Like if a person is going to claim they're Christian, these are going to be two markers. That's what he said up to this point. But then here, what he's doing, he's warning against the danger of false teachers and following those false teachers who contradict the doctrine of Christ. And then we'll see it in next week in verse 28, what he tells us to respond to. What, what does he exhort us to? To abide in Jesus. But, but here, John also says, Here's some marks of a Christian, but he said, here's some marks of those that apostatize, who defect. And those who defect from the true church show that they never truly belong to it. This is a big deal. This is what's solidified, galvanized people's souls in the worst persecution throughout church history, this is what they fed on. This is what pushed and compelled them to stay faithful to Jesus even when their executioner said, deny Jesus or die. And the reality is that this isn't all contingent upon you holding Jesus, but Jesus holding you. I said a genuine faith endures to end. A, a faulty, or a, a faith that fizzles was faulty to begin with. When Jesus gives you a new heart and he gives you his Holy Spirit and seals you with his Holy Spirit, there's nothing you can do to unseal the seal. No doubts you have, no confusion, no fighting, no sin is going to unpluck you from the Father's hand. 
Jesus said, I will not lose a single person that you've given me, Father. I have not and I will not. This persevering grace, because we have a, G a Jesus who is faithful and perseveres to us and holds on to us even when we're tempted, even when we're confused, even when we're flirting around with different worldviews, Jesus is holding on to us. I will not let you go. I will not forsake you. I will not deny you. I will not turn my back on you. I, I will not stop interceding on your behalf to the Father day and night. It's persevering grace from God to us perseveres our faith in him. And so I can try to engage you in some intellectual aspects. I can try to bring up some pastoral reflections. But at the end of the day, what I'm banking on in this is that if you're tempted right now or if you've been confused, that the Holy Spirit is going to work in you because he's anointed you. And he's going to speak to you because he's your teacher. And he's going to woo you back to Jesus because that's what he does. He's like the fantastic hype man that always says, look at Jesus. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't Jesus beautiful? Isn't Jesus better than any other story out there that tries to make sense of this world? And you're like, yes. Like, I need that Flavor Flav hype man in my life to just keep saying, look at Jesus. You know why? Because I don't want to look at Jesus. Because there's all these other things like last week, this lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Then I'm like, I think I want some of that. I want to dabble over here. I want to mess with this. I want to look at this. And the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you put that to death and walk with Jesus. Now and until the end. Let me back this up scripturally. 1 John 3, 9, he says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Now, I told you in chapter one that this is not John saying that you can be sinless as a Christian, but he's asserting that it's impossible for those born of God to engage in a prolonged lifestyle characterized by unrepentant sin. They cannot fully fall away. And he says in 1 John 5, 4, everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. Let me... Let me try to read that differently, how you think about this. Everyone who has been born of God may stay with God or may fall away from God. No. That's not what he's saying. If God has given you new heart and reconciled you to himself in relationship, you can't make that new heart dead. You don't have the power to break that relationship with the Father. You can't unwoo yourself from him wooing you to himself again and again and again and saying, no, 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 I'm your father and I've given you the spirit in your heart so that you can cry, Abba, Father, back to me. You've been given the spirit that seals you and this spirit confirms daily that I am a child of the father. 
This is what you've been given. Everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. There's not even a fork in the road. There's not a choice for you. If God has given you new birth, if God has regenerated you, if you've been made new and alive, you've conquered the world, you will not be conquered by the world's systems and values. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Saving faith is conquering faith. God will hold on to you. I've quoted some sociologists, a pastor, a Baptist commentator. Let me, let me round it off by a Puritan. My, my friend, John Owen, we're not friends. I named my son after him, but we're not friends. But John Owen said this. I told you, First John 2 is not funny. I'm trying to be funny. I'm not kidding. I'm not. Uh, I want you to hear this, though. John Owen, this is what he said. Though you take but weak and faint hold on Christ, he takes sure, strong, and unconquerable hold on you. Can you read that to yourself? And then he ends with, have you not often wondered that this spark of heavenly fire should be kept alive in the midst of the sea? Do you, how braggadocious and arrogant would it be to think that you're keeping the fire alive in your heart for Jesus in the midst of such turmoil, upheaval, and chaos? You, you think you have that much fire in your belly? You do? I don't. Like, honestly, I don't. I don't have enough fuel in the tank to withstand the constant waves of opposition and new thinking and world. I don't. Back to that scene language, it'd be easy to get caught up in the waves, the current, and be dragged out to sea. I don't have the power to overcome a current. But God, in his infinite power, holds on to you even when your hold on him is like, two fingers. So I, I try to wrestle with those that are maybe doubting or serving those that are doubting, but let me just get to the, the point here is this. If this is who our God is, and this is how he holds on to us, our response should be glorious praise and worship. Not, not for only beginning our new life, but telling us and keeping us until the end. That he's so committed to us and in relationship with us that there'll be nothing in you, nothing around you that will pull you out of his embrace. And so when we're thinking about persevering grace, we, we first, we, we can grieve. We can grieve the friends and family members and some of my pastor friends that have defected and walked away from the faith. And we can enter into those people that are currently wrestling with thoughts and doubts and confusion. And then we can also 
joyfully praise God that he has us and will not let us go. Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, said this, Christ is Christianity itself. He stands not outside of it, but in its center. Without his name, person, and work, there is no Christianity left. In a word, Christ does not point the way to salvation. He is the way itself. This is what the apostles taught. This is what the word of God says. This is what the spirit affirms. This is what we believe. This is where we abide. This is what we confess. And eternal life is what we're promised. So I'm going to invite you in kind of maybe those three different categories to, to wrestle. Like I, I think I've put actually a lot out there. And those, just those three things. Like how am I actually going to apply and walk in this? I'm just going to invite you to do that. Maybe it's grieving over those that walked away. Maybe it's praying for it and moving towards in love to the person that's struggling right now. And maybe right now it's just praising God, singing, praying, thanking him that he will not let you go. Father, I thank you that you have us, that you hold us. And while people walk away and deny you, we will stand strong, not because we're strong, powerful men and women who've got our life together, but because you've given us the spirit of power. You've given us your powerful Holy Spirit to be present with us and in us. And your revelation to us is greater than any revelation we've heard from any other source. And greater than any revelation that we'll hear from anyone else through the rest of our lives. So Lord, I ask that you'd work in us. And that this would at least stir conversations. Maybe it would free someone up to say, I'm, I'm really wrestling with these things. I want to talk about this. Lord, I ask that you'd work in your people by your spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen.